Today, I'm going to start a whole new series of messages, and it will be based upon the book or the letter of the first Corinthians by Paul. The reason why I chose the first Corinthians was because I've always wanted to preach this series for a very, very long time, but I held on until I established some basic foundations. So I've covered a gospel, the Gospel of John. I've uh, touched upon different epistles like Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians, and these were foundational. And so I believe that it is now the right time for me to address the topics that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 16. Now, why is 1 Corinthians so significant? What is it about this particular letter? We know that in one sense, it is almost completely opposite of what is emphasized in the letter to the Romans. Letter to the Romans is very doctrinal, heavily theological. Now, 1 Corinthians, of course, have solid theological foundation, but it's mostly practical issues, the practical issues that occurred in those days, and particularly in the context of the Corinthians church. And we're going to see that there were so many problems with this church. This church was a major headache for Paul. And even after sending this letter, they didn't quite respond the way Apostle Paul wanted them to respond. And so, later on, he sends another letter. And that letter is so much more harsh than this first letter. And there was a previous letter that's also mentioned in chapter 5 of this letter that somehow got lost. So, Paul has been sending a series of letters to this particular church, trying to persuade them to lead a life of godliness and to be holy people of God. But somehow, they have not quite responded the way Paul wanted them to respond. As a matter of fact, they started rebelling against Paul. Not everybody, but a significant number of people. They started accusing him and doubting him and undermining his apostolic authority. And so in 2 Corinthians, he comes on really harsh, establishing his authority as an apostle of Christ. So let me give you a little bit of the background for this letter, and then I'm going to give an introductory talk on this uh, letter. The city of Corinth is located on an isthmus, and that is the bridge land, a narrow bridge land, connecting the southern portion of the, the Greek peninsula, and that province is known as Achaia. And so we see Corinth on the, the western side and the city of Athens on the eastern side. And this narrow strip of land connected these two. The city of Corinth also had two ports. And basically, the Corinth became known as the crossroad of so much commerce and trade. So basically, this was a region where there was an exchange of all kinds of ideas, cultures, wealth, and perhaps 
the thing that needs to be really highlighted about Corinth is that there was so much of sexual freedom that was going on in this city. They boasted of 12 temples, and of them, the high and mighty temple was that of Aphrodite. You know that she's the goddess of love or goddess of sex. And the temple was built on a high summit, some 1,800 feet high, on the Acro Corinth. And they boasted of some 1,000 temple prostitutes. And so there was a lot of a sexual looseness that was going on. And in the city, there was the temple of Apollo. And Apollo, as you know, is the god of music, song, and poetry. Basically, in this decadent society, he was a god of revelry. And he was also a god who idealized male beauty. So there was a lot of homosexuality going on in that city. So Corinth was known for loose morals, particularly sexual immorality, materialistic hedonism. In one word, lawlessness and licentiousness ruled the city. Now Paul had visited Corinth during his second missionary journey. That would be around the year 50 or 51. And he stayed in this city for one and a half years. And this was part of his journey which culminated at Corinth. But as you know, in his second missionary journey, he was passing through Macedonia, visiting the city of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then he headed towards the southern province of Achaia. He visited Athens first, and then Corinth. And now in his third missionary journey, Paul actually settles down in the city of Ephesus for some three years. And it was during this time, most scholars say that he probably wrote all his letters to the Corinthians church. And according to chapter 5, verse 9, there is a mention of a letter that was previously addressed to the church regarding some kind of moral problem and more likely some kind of sexual problem. But this letter is lost. So in this particular letter, the first Corinthians, which probably was written around the year 55 or 56, Paul addresses the initial matter and more, and particularly in response to the church delegates who were sent to him to inquire of Paul. They needed advice. They needed his counsel. They needed his authoritative statement, and Paul addresses them in the form of this letter. And as I mentioned before, the nature of this letter is so different from the nature of Romans. Romans is heavily doctrinal. 1 Corinthians, doctrinal only secondarily, is primarily practical. And he's writing a pastoral letter, giving practical advice to the church of Corinth regarding those issues and problems that they were dealing with in the present. There was an issue of division and faction. Some were saying, we follow Paul. Others were saying, we follow Apollo. Others were saying Cephas or Peter and Christ. And so Paul was really upset about this whole factional thing that was going on in the church of Corinth. And in chapter 5, 
there was this gross immorality, like incest, sleeping with the father's wife. That's more likely perhaps referring to the stepmother. And there was an incident like that, and the church had condoned that. No one has taken charge and brought discipline to this issue. The Christians were taking their fellow believers to pagan courts in chapter 6. They were engaged in all kinds of lawsuits, which is nothing new nowadays in the contemporary church of ours. Lawsuits between Christians because they cannot settle their own issues in their local church or in their own denominations. So they have to go to unbelieving courtroom to get those matters settled. In chapter 7, Paul particularly addressed the issue of marriage, remarriage, singlehood. And there's a lot of wisdom in what he has to say in the light of what was happening in that city and amongst the early Christians. In chapter 8, he addresses the issue of eating food, sacrificed to idols. Again, we see the wisdom of Paul permeating in his words. And he also talks about the manner in which women should dress for public worship. He talks about the observance of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 and the, the usage of spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. And finally, in chapter 15, he addresses the doctrinal issue regarding the resurrection of the dead. All these are very much practical issues that Paul was dealing with. And so I am very excited about this. Not because the context of Corinth is relevant necessarily to our church, because I don't see that in our church. Because our church is so small. And we're tight-knit. We're like a family church. And yet we're all ministers of the gospel, so we will go out into the world, and in our particular areas of ministry, we will encounter that. And all around us, we'll see churches plagued with issues similar to what the Corinthian church was going through. And so I thought during this time of pandemic, it would be good for us to be educated, be prepared, prepare for the worst in any kind of scenario. And then the Lord may give us some kind of pastoral wisdom to minister to the people in this world or churches that we may be assisting or organizations that we may be participating in. But I am not addressing this because I foresee some kind of internal problem here in our church. Of course not. In that sense, you might be wondering, why is the pastor teaching 1 Corinthians when the, the church in Corinth was the most problematic church? It's the, it's the worst church of them all. They went to oust their own apostle. So you understand my motive in this. You understand my intent in this. So do not take this personally. But I think this will really equip us how to be better pastorally minded people we can be if we will take to heart what Paul has to say to us. So in this first message, I've entitled it, Called by God. Could you repeat after me? Called by God. Called by God. And so let us read from chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Let's read this out loud together. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as Paul is addressing this church in Corinth, I believe that he is also addressing the churches everywhere and the church universal in general about the nature of being a church. What is a church? Whether it be a local expression or larger body, a national church, a denominational church, or the whole universal historic church as a whole. What is a church? And we see from the very beginning that Paul is emphasizing the fact that the church is a community that is specially called by God. Let's look at the first three verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sustenus, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by saying that I, Paul, who is called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. By the way, Sosthenes was probably that figure mentioned in Acts chapter 18. And this means that he was a former synagogue leader in Corinth and somehow he got converted by Paul. Now he is Paul's travel companion, Paul's assistant. And because Sosthenes was someone that the church in Corinth was familiar with, he's taking him by his side and he's saying, we both address you. And I particularly, as someone who is called as an apostle of Christ Jesus. What is an apostle? What is the meaning of apostle? The Greek term is apostolos, and it literally means one who is sent, or one who is commissioned, that is authorized by someone and delegated to do the works that someone has authorized them to do. That's what an apostle is. But Paul says, I am called as an apostle. That is, I am called for commission. What is the difference between a call and commission? I know that in the church today, 
I've encountered this so many times. I ask them to differentiate between call and commission, and most people would not be able to differentiate that. But technically speaking, call comes first. Commission happens later. Jesus called his 12 first to be with him so that he can disciple them. And three years later, he commissioned them to go out into all the nations. So call happens. This is the initial call that Paul is talking about. I have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ for the future commission that he has in mind. And what happens in between the call and commission? All the preparation that is necessary to do the works of commission properly. That's what happens between call and commission. So there's this spiritual formation, there's a, a whole maturing process, there's the equipping of skill and knowledge, and there's a special empowerment that they need to have. They need to be equipped. It's like a soldier being prepared for the battle. So a soldier is recruited by the government or the agency or the army, and the soldier goes through the military training, and then when the time comes, they are released to their mission. Likewise, Paul says, I have been called for commission. And it implies that there is a formation that is necessary to handle the commission that will be achieved. And likewise, in verse 2, when he addresses the church of God in Corinth, he says that you are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And then in verse 9, he says, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the Corinthian church, and for that matter, all the churches, we are called to be holy people. We're called into fellowship with Jesus and Jesus' people, the church. And this is where the Greek term for the word church is very important. Do you know what the Greek term for church is? I think you know by now. It's ecclesia. Ecclesia literally means called out called out. So the nature of the church is that Christ called out to the world and those who respond to the call of Christ would enter into his fold and become part of this new community in Christ which we call the body of Christ or the church. And in this body they are to understand what it means to be disciples of Christ. And they learn how to be incorporated into the body so that we function together as members of the body, work as a team. And here also there's an expression of the local church and the church in large. For example, in verse 2, the first portion of that says that the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people. He's talking specifically about the church in Corinth, that's the local church. But then he says 
together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church in large. So whether it be the local church or the mini church, or the church in large, the macro church, the whole body of Christ, the very nature is to respond to the call of Jesus Christ, ecclesia, to gather together as a community called the body of Christ or the church. And Paul says that the church is comprised of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and those who are called to be his holy people. It's the same word, hagios. That's where we get the word holy. The word sanctify is the same as the root hagios, which means holy. And what does it mean? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be sanctified? Sometimes we think of holiness and sanctification as like being morally right and, and getting our uh, life uh, you know, in a godly way and having clean character and having a life of integrity. We already think about behavior. But holiness primarily has to do with the idea of being set apart for God to be distinguished from rest of the others. God called us out of the world. He took us apart from the world. And he says, you're mine. Now you belong to me. And our behavior of pure morality, godly character, all that simply flows out of the fact that we belong to God. I think this is the greatest motivation that we could possibly have of leading a moral Life. How do we get morally sanctified? How do we lead a life of godliness? What's the greatest motivation? Think about that. I believe it is knowing that you belong to someone, that you are not of your own. Now you're accountable to that person that is God. That you are set apart, you are distinguished you can't operate like the way you operated in the olden days. Understanding that your life and your behavior has to change. Can I hear amen to that? Amen. Oftentimes we emphasize holiness so much. Get rid of your sin, repent, and lead a pure life. Be godly. Be a man or woman of integrity. And people cannot handle that. It sounds so legalistic, but when you start off by saying you need to live this way of life because of who you are, not because of what is imposed upon you. I say that to my children all the time. Mom and dad, our job is not just to check your behavior so that you do the right thing, you don't do the wrong things. We're not some monitors, we're not some police. We're your parents who love you. We wish that you would operate more naturally so that understanding who you are, that your identity is dependent upon your relationship with Christ. And therefore, if you are a child of God, if you are a, a servant of Christ, then you should behave accordingly. I know it may not be a major difference to you. You may not see any difference. 
But it makes all the difference. Because you start with the source of teaching them who you are by nature. And the church is like that. If the church understands that we are by nature, not just some bunch of people congregating together because we have the a kinship-mindedness about certain things or certain interests. But we are people of all different backgrounds coming together because of God's will and purpose. And He says, come. And I want to identify you as my people. I want us to start a whole new relationship together. I want you to know that I am your God and you are my people. And because of that, you must go out and be the salt and the light of the world. I think that's what God is intending for us as the church. Second thing we need to understand about the church is that we are certainly endowed with much, much spiritual riches and also fully equipped with all the necessary gifts and potentiality to do the works of service in the name of Jesus. In verses 4 to 6, Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God does confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He talks about grace. He talks about special blessing of enrichment. He's saying that you have been endowed richly. You have been granted spiritual gifts, all kinds of spiritual gifts. In other words, you are filled with the blessings of God, filled with all kinds of potentialities in Christ. And he particularly mentions with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. And when we get to chapters 12 and 14, we'll be studying about spiritual gifts. And in, amongst the spiritual gifts, we have all these gifts that are related to speech. In this case, the term is logo. Logos, the speech the articulated words, whether it be in speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, preaching or teaching. The ability to articulate in words are so important. And we need to be equipped in this body to be able to articulate in words. For me, this is so important because of, I know what I went through. All my life, all my teen years, and in my early 20s, I felt totally unequipped to speak in the public. So when I first received the call from the Lord, I thought, I can't possibly receive this call because among all the people, I certainly don't know how to speak before the public. I'm scared to death about standing before people to articulate in words, how could I preach the gospel? And yet, once I broke through the spirit of intimidation, and I was able to now engage in proclaiming the gospel, teaching the word of God, and in the olden days even prophesying, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and, and so forth. A lot of the things that I do today have to do with speech. Now I even teach public speech in my school. And unless you have gone through something like what I have gone through, you cannot really appreciate how much you have missed out. You cannot appreciate the, the beauty and the power and the strength of being equipped to speak forth the Word of God. And then knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning of spirits, certain type of revelatory understanding of things. Understanding facts in the light of what the Spirit is telling us. This is fact. This is reality. This is the way it is. This is what's going on out there. Having that, being equipped with that, has a way of empowering you. And all of these varieties of gifts are for the purpose of service and ministry to the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians. But when we talk about ministry, I want to talk about three areas of ministry. First of all, we minister unto God. We minister unto God. And that's what worship, that's what praise is. And also when we're serving others, we're actually ministering unto God. So that everything we do is a ministry unto God. And we also minister to each other, to the fellow members of the body of Christ. That's how we build up the church. When we come to church, we don't just come to receive. We come to give, to share, to contribute. And all that becomes a synergy to build up the body. And one more dimension, we minister to the world. I had one student asking me, uh, when I told them I, I'd be teaching on spiritual gifts next semester, and they said, can you use spiritual gifts outside of the church? I said, yes, of course, why not? You can use it in the marketplace, you can use it in the realm of art, and in the society, in the educational system, people out in the streets. You can certainly utilize all these gifts because they have to do with potentiality that's within. All you have to do is release that, activate that, and utilize that to bless so many people who are out there. So God does not simply call us as a church. He equips us as a church. He endows us with so much riches. So much is there potentially that we have not explored and activated and released yet. And so we need to understand that. We need to start understanding what God has given us and begin to utilize that. Finally, the church by nature is an entity that is sustained by God. The God does not just birth the church and then irresponsibly just throw the church aside. What he births, he is responsible to sustain and to cause the church to persevere to the end. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a doctrine in the body of Christ called the perseverance of the saints. It is actually reformed doctrine. I totally believe this. 
If we are truly saints and we are truly born again, we are the children of God, God will be responsible to cause us to persevere as saints so that we do not lose salvation. But it's not just salvation, sanctification. There are so many people who are plagued with this notion, I could never get better. I could never break out of that addiction problem. I could never, never break my generational curse. And people get bound by these cursed sins. And they don't know how to break out of that. But what we see Paul encouraging the church and all the Christians is that sanctification is the name of the game for us Christians. Whereby we become more and more conformed into the likeness of Christ. Lord will be faithful to help us to be transformed into that likeness. And what about spiritual warfare? So many Christians in the body of Christ are afraid of demons. At the mention of demons or satanic reality, they get so scared. They're hoping that this is not true. And maybe living in this modern age where so many percentage of the population deny the reality of spiritual entities and the demonic hordes, maybe they can find some peace saying that's not real, that's just a, a delusion, that's just an illusion. Satan's not really there. The notion of evil is there. Maybe the structures are evil, but there's no demon, you know, you know who's dressed up like you know, some character in an animation movie. That's not there. Of course, that type of demon may not be there, but there are demons all over the world. And if you want to check this out, just go to some of the rural areas here in Korea or in the nations. Go everywhere and you'll see shamanic phenomenon where you see shamans everywhere who basically mediate between human beings and the demon spirits. They're the mediators, intermediaries, trying to appease the demons so that humans can negotiate with demons and enter into a pact, which is a curse in its own. So Paul says in any kind of spiritual warfare or any kind of attacks that may come upon you, the Lord will be faithful to preserve you to the very end. And then finally, our mission to the world. We all have particular missions to the world and we're always afraid, can I accomplish that mission? Can I fulfill that mission before I die? And according to this word, yes, he will. Why? Because whatever God has promised to us through covenant, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have Christ who is interceding for us, mediating for us, and by his very nature and his character of being a promise keeper and one who is faithful, he will take us from the beginning to the end. And we must trust that. Church is not just you know, starting off right. It is not getting the first button right and the rest of them all off. No, it's getting the first button right, second button right, and progressively all the buttons down the road until we have a perfect outfit and so that we can show ourselves to be blameless before His presence. 
So this is what Paul is saying. Basically, the bottom line is this. Church is not about you. Your confidence, your purity, your favor, it's not about you. It's not because you are the cream of the crop of the society, because you are more pretty, more intelligent, more talented, more of the certain pedigree that God has chosen you. No, it has nothing to do with that. We'll see in the subsequent chapters, Paul is making an argument. No, you're not the best. You may be the worst. You may be the scum of the earth. But it doesn't matter because it's not about the church. It's about God. And the church only has future because of who God is. He says, God is faithful. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what we have to hang our thoughts and our faith on. Not upon the fact that, yeah, man, I, I have to do this. I have to be responsible. I got to be accountable. I got to be a good soldier of Christ. No, no, no. If the Lord is not sustaining me, holding on to me, bailing me out, He's there available for me, I have no hope. I have no future. But it is knowing for sure that God is right there. He will be faithful. He will sustain me. He has provided His Holy Spirit for me. Jesus is interceding for me. The Father is like of this nature, it is because of this confidence we can know for sure that we who are called by God, equipped by God, will be sustained by God in the long run. Amen? Amen. So I hope that you, you can take the, this word that I have proclaimed today, not just apply to the corporate body like our church, but apply it to yourself individually as a Christian. Everything that is applicable to the church is applicable to me, a Christian, a member of the body of Christ. So God has called me. God has equipped me. And God will sustain me. And God will raise me up for that day so that I can stand blameless before the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.